This is Resistance Network Radio, and I am one of your comrades. Under authoritarian regimes, opposition is criminalized and a resistance is forced to go underground. Resistance Network Radio is here to help you understand and develop the tools you're going to need to survive, to stay safe, to keep out of jail, and to keep fighting. I didn't expect all three opening episodes of the podcast to be about online security and RNR is going to deal with all sorts of other things, like the history of resistance movements and the lessons we can learn from them for everything, for things like building trusted networks, for recruiting, and many other real-life techniques in history. But because virtually all of the information and data you receive and create is going to be online, and because it's the easiest way for the authorities to monitor us and gather evidence against us and arrest us at any time they like, regardless of whether we've done anything wrong. And that's an important point, regardless of whether you've ever done anything wrong. Establishing online security is going to be the single most important thing anyone in the resistance is going to need to do. The basic steps are easy. In the last two episodes, we discussed two of the easiest and safest things you can do using Signal Private Messenger for texts and phone calls and Proton Mail for email. Today, we're going to talk to one of the few people in the world who not only understands this space, who explores it and researches it, and who's engineered some of its deepest and darkest corners, but who also understands it from both sides. For years, Sarah Jamie Lewis worked on major surveillance systems for British intelligence. Now she works for the people. She works to help all of us, small fish, stay out of those big nets. Part of Sarah's message is that our data has more control over our lives than we do ourselves. Data that we don't even know we're generating. Dots we might not even be aware that we're giving the government to connect with any lines they like. And this stuff can be used to target anyone at any time. But there are solutions and they're in reach for anyone. You don't need to have a lot of computer expertise the things we're going to be discussing are really available to all users. The important thing for everybody is to start now. The reason you have to start now is that Trump has promised an authoritarian state. It's what he campaigned on. It's what he's installing. He is limitlessly narcissistic, greedy, and vengeful. And that's not a good combination for anyone who opposes him. At the beginning of World War II, France was invaded by the Nazis. It was a country steeped in the traditions of liberal democracy. And most people just couldn't believe that something as insane as a Nazi takeover could happen. It was just, it was too unthinkable, even when the Nazi army was poised over the border and ready to invade. Six weeks later, Hitler was on a victory tour, literally dancing a jig for the cameras in front of the Eiffel Tower. And right away, traitorous French government authorities who were willing to work with the Nazis, 
started to round up their own citizens. It was inconceivable to most citizens that the degrees of treason and cruelty demanded by the Nazis of French leaders were possible, but they were. If you were the wrong kind of Frenchman in the eyes of the authorities, you became a criminal in your own country. You were rounded up, beaten, and tortured. The lucky ones were only sent to jail. Many were sent to German death camps. Everything Trump has done so far to get into power has mimicked the Nazi playbook. We'd be fools not to expect more. So for now, let's all start doing what we can to resist. Today we're going to speak to Sarah Jamie Lewis, an anonymity and privacy researcher working on projects that help people take control of their own security. She works on preventing fraud through adversarial machine learning, discovering and exploiting weaknesses in telephony and networking protocols, and she's conducted multiple security assessments of large e-commerce sites and back-end systems. She also publishes articles about the security of the dark web through Mascherari Press, that's M-A-S-C-H-E-R-A-R-I dot press, an independent organization that researches and publishes news articles and technical reports on anonymity, privacy, and security to help activists, journalists, and others protect themselves online and off. And she tweets at, at Sarah Jamie Lewis. And she's got a Patreon also. That's Patreon slash Sarah Jamie Lewis. Thanks for being the first guest on Resistance Network Radio. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Let's just start by filling everyone in on your background. I am currently an independent researcher uh, working on privacy research and um, kind of exploring anonymity technologies from the perspective of protecting marginalized communities. Before that, I spent uh, nearly four years at Amazon, uh, primarily working on securing various uh, parts of the e-commerce platform. And most recently there, I was working on preventing fraud in our systems that use machine learning to make decisions. And prior to that, I spent a number of years um, at a British intelligence department uh, where I was mainly working on discovering flaws in telephony and networking protocols. And kind of that is where I developed the passion I have now for privacy advocacy. There are a lot of things that I did back then that I regret now. And I've talked about a few of those things kind of on Twitter and on various kind of online forums. And I, I kind of now see my journey as kind of rectifying what I did back then and kind of making the world a better place. To understand your background and where you are today, we need to know a little more about those things that you regret. Um, so I can't go into in too much detail because of various uh, secret acts and that kind of stuff. Um, but I can say that I actively participated in building surveillance systems. Uh, and it's a, a part of my life that I have come to regret, especially with the recent trend towards right-wing governments, especially across the, the Western part of the world. A lot of people don't seem to appreciate the need for privacy and anonymity. Why should people care, first of all, that their communications be anonymous and private if they feel like they have nothing to hide? It's a good question. It kind of gets to the heart of what a lot of privacy advocacy is about. Um, I think the main thing that people perhaps don't understand is that we live in a very different world to the one that we lived in 50 years ago. The world that we live in now is one where our data 
has much more control over our lives than we do as people. So even though you may think you are doing nothing wrong, your data may put you at the scene of a crime, or it may profile you as being at risk of joining a terrorist organization. And it can be doing all of this while you are harmlessly going about your life. And if you don't take control of that data, if you don't understand the kind of data that you are putting out into the world and that is being collected by hundreds of different intelligence organizations, both government-run and, and privately-run, then you may find yourself in a position, perhaps not this year, perhaps not in five years, but at some point where you are asked to defend data that you didn't even know you created. And I think that's the argument that I've had the most it's been the most effective at kind of getting across to people that you, you don't need to know the, co the content of a communication to be able to extract intelligence out of it. You know, we've seen this with various leaks and we see it even in the public statements that the governments and intelligence officials make. They don't look at the content of communications. That is almost irrelevant. They look at who you called, when you called, where you were when you called. And it's that kind of information that is used to make determinations about pretty much everything. And that's what is uh, typically referred in the press to as metadata. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Is that controllable? Are people able to uh, to to limit the amount of their metadata that gets communicated? Uh, definitely. It, it's hard because it, it it involves an understanding of exactly what metadata you're putting out and by and by what means? I mean, a, a telephone call, for example, over a, a regular phone line, whether it's mobile or, or, or landline, there is a there is a multitude of data that gets brought out, burst out into the world that's available to practically every organization on the planet involved in that space, uh, whether it's you know uh, the phone number you're calling from, the area codes that you're dialing into, the, the switches that you're crossing, the time of day that you're calling. And that, you know, that's just one aspect of it. When you go online, it's the IP addresses you're visiting, or it's the, I mean, if, if you look at the recent legislation in the UK, they're building databases that profile the exact URLs that you're visiting at any given time and making provisions for things like porn identity databases. So there are, there are definitely ways to control these. You've talked about Signal before. It's a great app that kind of uses cryptography to make it pretty much impossible for any adversary outside of the people you are connecting to to determine when you called, who you called, what the call was about. Uh, you have software like Tor, uh, which can anonymize your web browsing such that even your ISP or anyone listening on the connections between you and the website can't work out which website you were visiting, how long you were there, what you were doing while you were there. With any of these systems, any of these technologies, my understanding of Signal is that it's an end-to-end -end encryption system. So it encrypts it inside your computer or your phone before it sends it, and then it's decrypted by the user on the other end. What if an adversary has a keystroke logger or something that compromises one end of that, of that loop? Is there a possibility that people think that they are secure, 
but are in fact compromised because of some malware or something on their computer or phone that can let somebody see what you're doing before it's encrypted? Uh, yes, this, I mean, this is definitely a risk. And it's actually one that we see a lot of in domestic abuse situations where partners have uh, surreptitiously installed software onto their partner's phone that allows them to record what they're doing. And in that case, no amount of security software is going to make a vulnerable device not vulnerable. And in this case, it's, there is no kind of silver bullet. There's no quick way to fix it. You have to revert back to less tappable forms of communication in that case, whether it's physically meeting up with somebody or using tappable forms of communication that are harder for a regular person to exploit. The only hack then would be for somebody to have access to your machine, get a keylogger on there or implant some malware, something like that. That's right, yeah. Is that something that people can reliably check their machines for? If some, Is there something that would detect that there is a keylogger on there? Not really. I mean, that, that's the horrible truth that pervades computer security. And that is, if your machine is compromised, it can lie to you about pretty much everything. If you do have a concern that your machine has been compromised in some way, like someone has installed a keylogger on it, your best defense is to either reinstall everything or get a new machine. Um, and in some cases, reinstalling everything may not actually get rid of certain very pervasive malware. It's a sad state of, of where we are in this kind of computer age. That fixation of mine with a keylogger is just, you know, that's not something that I'm informed about, obviously. That's why I'm asking so many questions about it. But but also because to a layperson seems like the obvious solution for anybody who wants to hack you, an authority wants to know what you're saying. Well, great. Just get something on his machine that transmit over the Internet every keystroke. And there we've got his passwords. There we've got everything. The kinds of people who want to target you are important. Um, if you are in a situation where you can't trust the people that you live with um, or you can't trust that your machine um, is secure at any given time and there is a chance of physical access, then yes, you, keyloggers are definitely a concern. If you are in a safe space and you're not too concerned, then your main form of attack is going to be through kind of a phishing link or downloading a file that has some malware installed on it. But those kinds of malware aren't really going to be looking at kind of invading your privacy. They might be things like ransomware that is trying to get money out of you by encrypting your drive. Um, or they might be generalized botnet uh, machines that are using your machine for computing resources um, or to or as a stepping stone for other attacks. Who is your main adversary and what kind of things are they likely to do to you is very important when considering it. that kind of keylogging instance is a threat. Can they be compromised by somebody making the mistake that John Podesta made and clicking on a link in an email? Yes. So, yeah, there are, there are a number of different strategies that can be used to exploit a device. And the complexity and the expense of doing that can vary depending on your threat model. So if you are an average person, not someone who is worth a large-scale hacking operation against. Your primary forms of exploitation are going to be someone in your life physically tampering with your device or 
a generalized phishing campaign that is trying to get your credentials for something. Very few cases of that, that kind of generalized hacking are going to be seen where we see people kind of getting an email or a text, clicking on a link, and a kind of a zero day being activated on that device. It does happen, and especially if the person is not keeping their device software up to date, uh, that can put them more at risk of kind of that kind of vulnerable attack. But for the most part, normal people aren't worth burning zero days for, and they generally aren't the target of targeted exploits, especially if we're talking about, I should probably kind of make the distinction here between phones and kind of laptops, um, kind of desktop computers. There are a number of avenues on desktop computers that make running arbitrary code easier than on mobile computers. If you are a, if you are a user, don't click on anything weird. I mean, that was, that was the advice that was going around when I was first getting into computer security, and it's as kind of salient then as it is now. Um, apart from that, if the device is always in your physical possession and you have a general trust of the people around you who would have access to that device, then you can be fairly certain that for your threat model, your device is secure. Somebody might open your laptop when it's still working or the simplest things are the way people can be compromised sometimes. Isn't that true? Uh, definitely. Uh, you look at cases where, I mean, the, the Ross Ulbricht case is probably a, a prime example of that, where he was the target of a, a very large FBI investigation. And while the, the pinpoint in that case was an agent lifting his laptop up while he was distracted in a, in a public library and being able to access files and things that were on the device because it was open and unencrypted at that point. Yeah, that, that kind of Operational security is vital, especially if you are in a less safe area. If anybody hasn't heard of who Ross Ulbricht was, he was the Silk Road guy, wasn't he? he was... That's right, yeah. yeah. But we shouldn't also forget that the government can be very nasty to people who shouldn't be high-value targets, like uh, Aaron from Reddit, who was hounded to death for doing, as I, as I understand it, essentially for posting online uh, in a public space documents that were essentially in the public domain to begin with. Yeah, the Aaron Schwartz case was a, a complete failure of the justice system. There are no words to describe it other than disgraceful, disgusting. And sadly, those kinds of cases uh, are more common than, than I think we would all care to admit. In terms of the authoritarians coming into power, it can all change for the worse, but there are steps that we can take too. What would be a reasonable learning curve for the average person who is just a casual user of their mobile phone and their computer? What would be the ways to get them to start thinking about this, apart from what you, you just said about the trouble they can get into, to approach learning this? So it starts with threat modeling. You have to understand what are you trying to protect and who are you trying to protect it from? And the answers to those questions differ depending on who you are and what you are doing. Um, you can't really start thinking about privacy until you understand you know, what is it that you are trying to keep private. Because the world that we live in, the kind of societies that we live in, we, we are expected to give up certain kinds of data in certain situations. And in many cases, the amount of work needed to protect that data, is, it, it's not worthwhile. But if, you, but if you start thinking about, okay, I want to protect the contents of my communications so that only I 
and the person I'm speaking to know what we are talking about. And then you, you can go on from them and, you know, install signal. And then you can be reasonably sure that anything that you send over signal is going to be safe. Um, you can do the same with kind of email. Uh, you mentioned proton mail, uh, kind of secure that area. Uh, and really then it, it, it's about a few incremental improvements. So, you know, what online services are you using? Do those services offer two-factor authentication? You know, that is, you need a password and something else, whether it's a code sent to your phone or a, a special device that you plug into your computer and enters a code. Um, that makes it much harder for hackers who manage to get your password from getting any of the information on the account or, or from taking over your account. Uh, let me just in interrupt with a question, which is, I sometimes say if you're using Gmail, you've already been hacked by Google. They, they scan the messages. If your messages are subpoenaed, they're going to cough them up. So there's two questions there. The one is not being hacked. The other is whether or not your data is already available just by using those services. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that, that is true. Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, I don't tend to use any Google services. I, I don't trust them with my data. And there, there are a bunch of other companies as well that I, I will not trust my data to. I think seeking out those alternatives is, is an important part of understanding how you protect your data. Unfortunately, they're in the early days of usability and user friendliness. And so as a person offering privacy advice to people, I tend to start with lock everything down and then you can start analyzing exactly what is locked down where and where you want to move it to. Pretty much everyone listening to this is probably sending text messages. So switch to Signal, that is locked down. Um, there are a bunch of other secure messaging apps. I don't recommend any of them. I don't have enough faith in any other system to recommend it. Email providers, if you are sending non-encrypted emails, then everyone from your email provider to the NSA has access to your unencrypted emails. That is true regardless of your email provider. It's, a, it's, it's really, it's a case of you are either encrypting your emails and so your webmail provider doesn't matter, or it's a case of everyone is able to read them. I mean, I, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with email. I use it every day. And most of my emails are unencrypted despite being a privacy activist. And that is because anything I know that is sensitive, I send over signal or I use other privacy tools like Ricochet um, in order to communicate that kind of information. Ricochet is an instant messaging system like the kinds you are familiar with. It's only available as a desktop app currently. It's rather unique in its design. So it uses the Tor network and in particular, a very special property of the Tor network and kind of other anonymity network. Ricochet is a, it's a metadata resistant instant messenger. And what that means is that when you use something like Signal, it is obvious to anybody listening online that you, as in your entity, is communicating with someone encryptedly. Perhaps they can't work out that you're using Signal, um, but they know that you are doing something and can likely trace back where you are. Ricochet uses the Tor network to hide that information. So by just having a user ID, you can give that to somebody and that person can message you and anybody listening on that communication line, the best that they can do is they can work out that 
someone is using ricochet, um, not who it is or what they're saying or who they're talking to, or even if they are talking to someone. So in that way, ricochet is designed to be probably the most private messenger that, that exists today. Okay, so just to be clear, Ricochet runs on the Tor network, but all you have to do to get it to run on the network is to download the program and type your messages in. It does all the rest. You don't have to go to any special lengths to connect to the Tor network. Now, tell us about Tor. Tor is an anonymity network, and what that means is it is designed to hide your IP address from the service that you're trying to connect to. It was originally designed to do kind of generalized anonymous browsing. So if you wanted to go to my site, you could send a request through Tor, and it would bounce through a number of different servers before arriving at my site. And so basically, this allows you to hide where you are visiting from everyone in that network. The, the first router only knows that you are visiting Tor. It doesn't know where you're visiting to. Um, and the last router only knows where you're going. It doesn't know who you are. And it does that by using some special cryptography. The servers are run by hundreds of different people. Um, I run a relay. Lots of other people run relays. And it's all done on a volunteer basis. And all the relays have various levels of trust, depending on how long they've been on the network, the kinds of routing that they do. And uh, the Tor organization as a whole manages the, the software and kind of distributes it. So is that, is the Tor network then maintained and financed all by volunteers and individuals? Is it a completely decentralized system? Is there no ownership? So that there are some levels of centralization kind of more at the political level than at the technical level. So when you look at the Tor network itself, there are things called directory nodes and they maintain a list of Tor routers that the software on your machine uses to work out a path to connect. And th those directory services are trusted and they are operated by trusted individuals within, within the community. The Tor software itself is developed by the Tor project and they are funded by various means, including uh, parts of the US government. So you have that level of some centralization at the political level, like with most software projects, but the technical level, kind of the day-to-day -day routing of the Tor network, the Tor relays themselves, the people route traffic to, is operated by, are operated by volunteers in a decentralized manner. Why would the U.S. government be involved for any reason other than to hack it or to, or to exploit it somehow? Tor itself was, was designed um, by the Naval Research Laboratory in part to work out ways to allow intelligence officials to perform investigations and to send messages without being spied on by adversaries. And the only way you can really do that, the way that anonymity works, is you can't just build an anonymity network for US spies because Russian spies and China spies are all just going to look at that network and see what's going on. You have to create as large of an, what they call an anonymity set, the number of people using the network as possible. So in order for the US government to be able to build this network, they had to make it more general. And eventually that was passed on to the Tor project kind of spun off as an independent group. A lot of it is to help avoid censorship in places where the US wants to provide access to various resources in places where they would usually be blocked. And so you know, kind of human rights 
parts of the US government that are concerned about human rights around the world do, do provide funding that way. So how difficult is it for somebody to use this? Uh, it's not that difficult at all. If you go to torproject.org, you can download what they call their browser bundle, which is a standalone browser, and you can run the installer, and generally you can just click connect, and it will do the job for you, and a little screen will pop up saying, hey, you are connected to the Tor network, and then you can continue browsing as if you were using Firefox or Chrome or whatever other browser you were used to using. There are risks involved. Tor kind of outlines these when you go to the download page. Using Tor is a necessary part of staying anonymous when you're browsing websites, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. You have to make sure that you're not leaking other kinds of information. The example I always give is, you know, you could have the most anonymous network possible, but if you stand at one end and shout, hi, I'm Sarah, then everyone knows who you are. So there's definitely some level of personal responsibility and security that has to go into using these kinds of systems. You are a specialist in the dark web. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and how Tor is what connects to that? Sure. So a, a special property of the Tor network and of other anonymity networks is this idea of hidden services. So not only does Tor hide your IP address from the server, it also hides the server's IP address from you. And so you can set up websites or other kinds of internet connected servers that other people can access using a special address. They call it an onion address. And people use these things. There are thousands of sites online from political blogs to drug marketplaces. And kind of we call that the dark web because you don't know who exactly is on the other end of that connection. Most lay people like me, when they hear dark web, Think of it actually as the dark side because of drugs or sex slave transactions or Silk Road or things like that. There are a lot of people who say, well, you know, these tools shouldn't be available because they cover up things like pedophilia or they cover up drug dealing or they cover up terrorism, illegal arms transactions, whatever. That has always really been the argument for, for new technology, especially new technology that makes it harder for police to do their jobs. Kind of, they, they said it about the internet, <laughs> they said it about cellular phones, that they make these arguments all the time. And there is an element of truth to them, right? They're, the dark web is used by drug and gun runners. And I think that's important that we accept that. But I also think it's important that we understand that this technology also helps people communicate anonymously. It helps you look at the, the forums of various drug marketplaces they're full of people helping people understand drugs, helping them understand how to take drugs safely. Mm -hmm. In many cases, helping them quit their addiction to certain things. And a lot of people telling people how to be safe while taking certain drugs. Um, and you look at the studies that have, have been done into these communities, they, should, they actually reduce harm by a significant amount. As well as that, you have people promoting political blogs from places that they wouldn't usually be allowed to host any kind of political dissent. And so we have to understand that any technology that lets people kind of subvert the system has good uses and bad uses. And if we look at it in balance, those good uses far outweigh the bad uses. 
and also the bad uses shouldn't be paid for by every other citizen. And the, the bad stuff goes on anyway. I've never seen any evidence that there has been an increase in uh, child trafficking, in drug trafficking. So the arguments about how it shouldn't be permitted because it makes the jobs of the authorities who are monitoring it more difficult, to me, is not a fair argument because they always tend to abuse that power and use it on political enemies and not just criminals. That is a really good point. And I'll probably just add here that if you look at statistics for the size of kind of the underground economy, the size of you know people trading in drugs or guns or other kinds of illicit materials, and you look at even the overblown estimates that the FBI or the ICE gives for the amount of money being pushed through these dark websites, it is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. These systems really don't make up any significant part of, of the black market economy. Uh, they, they are simply reflective of what's already going on in the world. You've used the word trust and said that, for example, the, the Tor servers are run by, by people who have varying degrees of trust. Let's talk for a moment about trust, how that trust accrues, who is trusted, and why users of something like Signal or Tor should trust it. That is a great question, and it's, it's probably one of the most argued over questions in the technical community. At some point, you have to trust someone, whether that is the person who is making your food at a restaurant or the builder who built your house or you know, the person who made your car or the person who writes your software. Um, if you go around kind of trying to understand in detail every single thing that went into everything that you use, you would spend all day doing that and not spend any time doing anything else. The reason that tools like Tor and Signal have a degree of trust is that they are open source, which means that anybody within the community can go look at the code they can inspect new code as it's integrated in. That's not 100%. It's, it's, you know, there have been bugs that have been introduced, whether maliciously or accidentally, that have made software more insecure. But that, that open source aspect makes it, first, easier to detect those things and easier to go back and work out what went wrong. With commercial software, with closed source software, if a company like Google was to backdoor their application, you'd never know. You'd just get an update on your phone, and that would be it. Apart from that, there is also a personal aspect. Um, within the privacy community, there are degrees of people who have more respect than others. Like any social graph situation, that doesn't mean that people aren't lying. It doesn't mean that people aren't being honest. But the systems that have been created and are set up are designed such that if participants were to be dishonest, first, it wouldn't be catastrophic, and secondly, it would be detectable. Is all the stuff that you would recommend open source? Uh, yes. I try not to use anything that has proprietary elements in it. That is impossible. Um, you know, the laptop that I'm speaking to you on right now runs a BIOS and runs a, a core operating system that are proprietary in many instances. The phone I use has a proprietary baseband signal. 
but the software that I install on that, the software that I use on a day-to-day basis is all open source. What you just said is you've got to trust people to build your car, cook your food and so on. In spite of that, I still find this difficulty of getting people to do things like switch to the apps. You know, I guess they're going to start doing it more when their friends are busted. You know, when somebody goes to a uh, protest and the photograph of them at a protest is what's put down in front of them in an interrogation room and that that's been mated to their phone number and their email addresses. And, you know, at that point, people are going to start to say, "Uh oh, but right now there still seems to be a huge degree of complacency out there. There is. And it is difficult, especially if you if you don't have much experience with political activism. And a lot of people are currently going through their first wave of activism, whether it's attending protests, especially in the United States right now, uh, kind of gearing up for Trump's inauguration. Many people don't understand the, the level of sophistication of surveillance that goes into monitoring protesters and known activists at protests. And unfortunately, it will likely be, as you just described, the consequences of that that first makes people realize that they need these tools. The best that we can do is really provide those options and provide reasons why using these tools puts them in a better position. Not a perfect position, but a better position. Also, the uh, uh, something that people need to be aware of is that these intense levels of surveillance technology that exist and that are in the hands of the authorities are generally disguised in court they're allowed to present evidence without revealing how they got it if they can convince a judge that disclosing the methods of getting it would compromise those methods. And so people can be very surprised with evidence that's presented against them and never know even how anybody got it. That is true. It, it, is, a, it is a standard part of intelligence operations, especially domestic intelligence operations that the police use tools that they don't have warrants for, they don't seek official official permission to use, but they use the information gathered there in order to discover new avenues to investigate. And then we'll present those new avenues as the official evidence. And so it's always good to be aware that you have to be prepared for your adversary to be more persistent than you are prepared to protect your communications and your data from techniques that you may not expect people to use. Just about everybody uses Facebook, and Facebook is an enormous collection point of data. Facebook's entire reason for existence seems to be to collect data. Is there any way for people to use Facebook safely, or is it should they just know that if you're using it, be aware that you are parting with a lot of information? Yes. I mean, pretty much like every every online service that you use, Facebook being the most, the key example, any data that you put on that, consider it public, consider it accessible to any authority. And be aware that Facebook and Google and many other sites collect information that you may not be aware of. They collect everything from your IP address to where your mouse is on the screen at any given time to the kinds of posts that you're reading, the kind of posts that you're liking, things that you're typing into direct messages between people, kind of non-public information, any information in the photos you're uploading. We know that Facebook does machine um, 
kind of facial image detection on photos that you upload to work out where people are at given times. It uses timestamping information to kind of build a dossier on where you've been. If you are considering doing any kind of subversive work, then you definitely don't want to be anywhere near a Facebook connection. This brings up the question of how people can connect safely with other activists. If you're in a little town in rural America and you're interested in not just protecting yourself, but also participating in opposition or in resistance, are there safe hubs? Is there a safe way for anybody to connect? Now, understanding that they would first have to be prepared to use something like Tor, the things that we talked about earlier, if they establish their end of security on their computer and on their phone, are there then ways that are at all secure to, to hook up with other people? Any interaction with other people, especially people that you don't know, carries a risk. If you look at South American activist communities, they have been very successful in developing strategies that allow them to communicate publicly, whether it's on forums like Facebook or other public forums. You know, but they are careful in the kinds of information they share. They're careful to compartmentalize which people they tell what information to. That is why when you generally see protests happen that are not advertised beforehand, people will generally only get a generalized location a few days before and a specific location an hour or a few minutes before. And that kind of planning ahead and that compartmentalization is very important to carry these things out. When it comes to discovering activist communities, it's hard. It is difficult. Generally, the best place is face-to-face -face meetings. There is generally always a, a small meetup somewhere within your vicinity of people who are interested in the kind of topics that you are interested in. And from there, you will meet other people and kind of your network will grow. I see a lot of people for, for larger events, for larger protests, for protests that are well established beforehand, then certainly things like Facebook and other things are, are useful sources of information. And indeed, that kind of publicized dissent is, is important. We need to be doing more of it. Um, kind of this normalization of resistance. Um, kind of not all of privacy activism is telling people to hide everything that they are doing. It's, it's about revealing information at the right time and being in control of the information that you give in order to maximize your security and your safety. Yes, and, and here's a very important point that you bring up, because if someone's concerns for privacy and staying undercover were all that ruled, then nobody would know that there are people who are en masse opposed to Trump, opposed to authoritarians, people just would never hear about it, right? Everybody would be being quiet. Everybody has to analyze their position a little bit and determine where along the pole from opposition to resistance they are. Resistance is the thing that forms when the opposition is criminalized. The opposition needs to remain vocal. It needs to continue to, to, to pressure politicians. It needs to let people know that there's a lot of them. So people who are going to engage in resistance will need to establish a few basic good security protocols, ways to keep their emails, their texts safe to begin with, ways for it not to be too clear about what they're browsing. And that would be a huge step forward. Definitely. 
yes, that kind of that kind of baseline is so important, especially in the the world that we know that we live in. We know that Trump is inheriting the largest surveillance apparatus ever constructed. We don't know exactly what he will be using it for. We don't know what his priorities will be. We don't know who else will get control of that in the future. And so we have to raise the bar. This is kind of the the core principle behind a lot of security and privacy engineering efforts. You can't stop all surveillance. You can't stop really targeted surveillance. You know, if the government wants to spend a million dollars to pay 20 people to follow you every minute of every hour of every day, you you can't stop that. But it's really expensive and they can't do that to everybody. So if you raise the bar, stop them from being able to intercept every communication that you send. Stop them from being able to mass hack your devices. You know, be careful of the information that you share with large platforms that can be subpoenaed and um, will give up that information. Then you make it harder for them to work out who to target. And that further drives up the expense until eventually you would hope that the state is only interested in people who might actually pose a threat to the society. And the truth is that that's a very, 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 very small part of any society. Most people, I think at least, don't want to do much harm. The best time to secure your communications, the best time to encrypt your communications is now. You know, build a pattern of using anonymity networks. Build a pattern of sending encrypted text messages. Because if you start doing that just before an act of resistance, then that flags you up as a target. But if you have a history of using these tools and these communications, then the, this, the sheer frequency of your use of them becomes noise in itself. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's a very important point. Don't become part of that machine. You know, take yourself out of it now, such that there is no signal when the time comes and your data flags up. For your frequencies, your email, your text, to already just be static as far as authorities are concerned. Do it all in advance. Get it all going. Use it now. That's the main message. How much privacy do you have? I know you mentioned earlier that you don't encrypt every email, for example. But if you don't, who will? I'm a fairly public figure. A lot of people, especially within the community, know who I am. So really, I mean, for the most part, I am not that anonymous. However, I have a variety of contacts, people I speak to in various avenues who do want to protect their anonymity. I work with a lot of um, marginalized communities who want to be secure from, from various threat actors who require that I, I keep their trust, that I don't reveal who they are intentionally or unintentionally. So I spend a lot of time on Signal. I get a variety of encrypted emails from various sources. Kinds of people who email me change their email every time they send a message. Kind of, I see my role not to be anonymous, but to broadcast these technologies, to promote their use, to fix them, kind of to bridge that gap between the, the technical people who are building these systems and the people who need to use them. I think there is a fairly large disconnect right now, especially in, in tools that the people who I talk to and work with need. They want to write about their experiences. They want to publish what's happening to them. 
but there's no way for them to do that safely. They can securely talk to me, but they can't securely talk with the world without fear of revealing something or, or from using a service that they're not comfortable with using. While I am not anonymous in myself, I, I have anonymous aspects of my personality. Like I have, I maintain accounts on various darknet sites that I use to do my research. You know, and I have anonymous personas that I use when I'm originally finding sources to meet with and to discuss various aspects because I don't necessarily want to reveal who I am at that moment um, for various reasons. The way I originally became aware of you was you responded to a tweet. I believe it was to Matthew Green. Does that sound right? Yes, that's how I think that was right, yeah. Okay, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially... He tweeted that journalists interested in protecting their sources have to make sure that they are using two devices, one that is completely disconnected from the Internet and another one that they use for communication. You tweeted back to say, well, it's just unrealistic. It's just, you know, why prescribe something that's just not going to happen? And then he tweeted back to say, well, I guess that's just tough luck then. So just in closing, what that exchange means I mean, the advice was sound. Um, if you split your devices such that you are doing risky stuff, you know, like web browsing and answering emails on one device and storing sensitive documents on another device that's not connected to the internet, then the, the chances of those things being compromised is, is very low. Unfortunately... It's a lot to ask. I mean, it, it, it's impractical. Um I mean, probably one of the, I think I got a reply to that tweet, which was, in many cases, it's journalists' job to click on weird things from people they don't know um, in order to get information. Um, and I think we need to be better as a security community at understanding exactly what our users do and how they do it and how we can protect them or introduce new workflows that make it less risky for them to do their jobs. In the case of the journalist example, you know, that advice works if you are a journalist at a top-level media company and you know people can afford to send you two laptops. If you're an independent journalist or you're working in a you know a much poorer country or for a, a news organization that doesn't have those resources. Or you don't have electricity to charge them with. <laughs> exactly. I mean it's now, or you're working for a nonprofit or any of these kinds of situations, yeah. that advice doesn't help you. It just makes you feel less safe. Um, and it makes you feel helpless because it makes you feel like if you're not doing that, then there is nothing that you can do. And I think that's, that's a problem. I think that is something the security community struggles with, this idea that if you're not perfect, then you're screwed. And I, I, I want to change that. You know, people have to be doing threat modeling. They have to understand where their risks are coming from. They have to adopt certain behaviors that put them at less risk. But for the most part, we as a security community have to build tools and new systems and work with those users to raise the bar up for everybody. I mean, I think I phrased it in one way. I mean, I think the example that Matthew Green gave was it was like, you know, telling doctors in hospitals to wash their hands. And my response to that was, no, it's kind of like building an entire plumbing system for clean water is the state where we are at. 
you know, we are telling we are telling users to wash their hands, and they've got no way of getting clean water. Right. And so we, as a security community, need to get building. Okay, we've been talking with Sarah Jamie Lewis, who works on preventing fraud through adversarial machine learning, discovering and exploiting weaknesses in telephony and networking protocols, and who has conducted multiple security assessments of large e-commerce sites and back-end systems. She publishes articles about the security of the dark web through Mascherari.press, that's M-A-S-C-H-E-R-A-R-I, and Mascherari.press is an independent organization which researches and publishes news articles and technical reports on anonymity, privacy, and security in order to help activists, journalists, and others protect themselves online and off. And you can find Sarah on Twitter at, at Sarah Jamie Lewis. And her Patreon, it is a place where you can be, even for tiny amounts of money, a patron of the arts, of writing, of scientists, of researchers. So go check Sarah's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Sarah Jamie Lewis. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And that's it for today's broadcast from Resistance Network Radio. Please take to heart the things that Sarah Jamie Lewis discussed. You should start encrypting now. It's easy to use the Signal Private Messenger app and ProtonMail. Download and use Ricochet, and that's as easy to use as just typing a message in. Consider downloading Tor, that's spelled T-O-R, the Tor browser software, and start learning to use that. And as unfortunate as it might be, something else to consider is the actual physical security of your machine. If you're sharing a laptop or a computer with someone, just be aware that they are able to put commercially available key logging software on it, and that can provide them with complete readouts of everything you type. Your computer should be considered an extension of your mind. You want to be able to keep it to yourself. And a note to listeners, Resistance Network Radio is free and anonymous. There are no ads or sponsors, and we're not asking for donations. It's done purely in the hopes of spreading information to protect people in the resistance. So to help others get this information, there are a few things you can do. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review for it, either on the iTunes Store or Google Play Music. When you leave a review, it won't stick unless you subscribe, give it stars, title the review, and then write a few words. Please do those things. And of course, share the podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening. And remember, death to fascists. This is Resistance Network Radio. Your comrade, signing off.